You make that sound like it's an easy question. Like, this is the starter question, but it's actually very hard. So that's a good question. I think uh, free will is... Free will is... Free will, I think, is... Uh... What free will is is actually a pretty complicated question. So what is free will? Hello, this is Free Will Matters. My name is Santiago Amaya, and I'm an associate professor in philosophy at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. I am very happy to host this podcast. The problem of free will has been at the center of many discussions in Western philosophy for the last 20 centuries. But in recent years, the problem has reappeared in a fresh form. There are new and exciting developments in the field that make this a fascinating topic of conversation. For this podcast, we have invited various philosophers who work on free will. Philosophy might be a daunting thing, but with their help, we will get to know better the what, the how, and the why of free will. Welcome. For our last episode of the season, we're very happy to have Dirk Perboom. Dirk is Susan Linsage Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University, and he's also Senior Associate Dean for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Arts and Sciences. Dirk is the author of various books and many, many articles, including Living Without Free Will and Free Will Agency and Meaning in Life. Hi, Dirk. Let's begin at the very beginning. Can you tell us in a few words what free will is? Free will has a number of characterizations in the history of philosophy. One is... To have free will is the ability to act and to refrain. And often nowadays that's put in terms of the notion of being able to do otherwise. The idea is that when you have free will and you act in a certain way, you also had at that time the ability to have acted differently. So that's one definition. Another characterization of free will in the history of philosophy links free will with moral responsibility. The idea is that to have free will is to have the control in action that's required for moral responsibility. Of course, at this point, there's a question as to what control means and what moral responsibility means. But in my view, if you wanted to find the notion of free will so that it divides the players in the debate between those who believe in free will and those who don't, it's important to define free will in terms of the control in action required for a controversial sort of moral responsibility. And that is, for me, uh, the sort of moral responsibility that entails desert, and more specifically, basic desert or fundamental desert. Dirk, you are known for defending a skeptical position regarding free will. Can you summarize the view for us? Can you tell us why you find skepticism appealing? If we characterize free will as the control in action required for basic desert moral responsibility, in my view, there is a good argument that we don't have free will of that sort. So if determinism is true, then there's a good argument from an analogy to manipulation, we deterministic manipulation, that we don't have free will of that sort. And I think that free will is also compromised if certain kinds of indeterminism are true, because if indeterminism is true without, at least the indeterminism that's most likely to be true on the basis of our scientific theories, 
That also doesn't give us the control and action required for that sort of moral responsibility. Because after all, indeterminism would give us openness, perhaps, but indeterminism of that sort seems to diminish control. For example, if there is such a thing as quantum indeterminacy, and if it percolates up to the level of human action, there's a question as to whether we're in control of the indeterministic, control of which indeterministic possibility actually results. You mentioned just a moment ago manipulation arguments. Typically, these are arguments to say that free will is incompatible with the world's having a deterministic causal structure. Can you explain to us how those arguments work? So the manipulation argument is an argument against compatibilists, and compatibilists believe that causal determination is compatible with the sort of free will that I think is at issue in the free will debate, namely the control and action required for basic desert moral responsibility. I think a lot of people are natural compatibilists. They think there's really no problem with our being morally responsible in that sense, whether or not determinism is true. And uh, they're incompatibles who think that you know, if all of our actions are in the cards as a result of the distant past and the natural laws, then there's no way in which we can basically deserve blame and praise, punishment and reward for the actions we perform. So how to try to get compatibilists on board with this sort of view? Now, one possibility is through an analogy with manipulation. So it's possible to imagine cases in which agents are intentionally manipulated in a deterministic way, in which they yet satisfy all the compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility. They endorse their actions. Their reasons responsive. They're not coerced. So it's possible to have to set up manipulation scenarios in which, for example, neuroscientists manipulate an agent to behave in a certain way deterministically so that in a way uh, such that all the compatibilist conditions are satisfied. Now, if you imagine that they manipulate him into killing somebody in a case in which if he weren't manipulated, he wouldn't kill the individual, then I think you can generate the intuition that the agent is not morally responsible for the action. And at that point, the second step of the argument is to try to show that there's no relevant difference between a manipulation case of this sort and a naturalistic, a natural deterministic scenario in which an agent is causally determined by virtue of the distant past and the laws to behave as he does, but uh, in a way that does not involve intentional manipulation. So if you can show there's no moral responsibility, relevant difference between the manipulation case and that ordinary deterministic case, then perhaps you can get the compatibilist on board with the view that... Uh, compatibilism is on the ropes. Dirk, suppose you were wrong, and it turned out that we really are free. Would there be any practical cost involved in being a skeptic? In your opinion, in a world where there is freedom, is the skeptic's life lacking of something important? Skepticism has, free skepticism has some advantages. I think it makes people less retributive when it comes to punishment. Uh, Spinoza argued that it uh, makes people more tolerant. I think that's probably right. I think it also has some disadvantages. Uh, I think it has the advantage of us of not endorsing negative basic desert, i.e. retribution. But it also has the defect of undercutting positive basic desert. So we naturally think that people basically deserve praise for morally exemplary actions. And that view gets ruled out by free will skepticism. This can be recouped to a certain extent. Maybe they're kind of forward-looking consequentialist reasons for celebrating uh, morally exemplary actions. But I do acknowledge that there's a loss there. Let me ask you another hypothetical question. Suppose you became convinced that skeptical worries about free will, the sort of worries that you have been raising, could be adequately answered. 
what would be the most appealing fallback position for you? So I remember uh, when I was in grad school before I was a free will skeptic, I was a libertarian agent causalist. And I still kind of like that view. In everything I've written about free will, I've never said that uh, libertarian agent causation is incoherent or absolutely ruled out. So I still think there's an opening for that view as being the correct one. And it's and if all the free will skeptical worries were answered, maybe I'd go for libertarian agent causation. Here's another question we've been asking our guests. You've been writing about free will for quite a number of years now. What do you think are the most exciting recent developments in the field or in the debate? There's really been, in the last, I'd say, 25 years or so, there's been an explosion of interest in free will and responsibility. And so all areas, all sub-areas of this more general field, I think, are being explored profitably, and it's really exciting to see. I think there's uh, a lot of interest these days in moral psychology, in the, the moral emotions. There's been a lot of work in the last five or six years on blame, what blame is and how it works, and various kinds of blame, and how to justify blame. So that's an exciting sort of development. Other moral psychological attitudes have also seen a lot of action. One example is forgiveness. So forgiveness is a kind of interesting, complicated moral emotion on which a lot of people have written. And what you think about more responsibility and free will makes a difference for what you're going to say about forgiveness. I think if you think about the notion of agency, I think that uh, what morally responsible agency is has seen a lot of profitable work. So compatibilists, for example, compatibilists on the reasons responsive side have developed theories that make the agent the focus of reasons responsiveness as opposed to other factors. Like in the Fisher view, it was mechanisms. In the view of Carolina Sartori and Michael McKenna, it's the agent. I think that's a very exciting development. As a free will skeptic, even though it's billed as a compatibilist theory, I think it can take on that view as a free will skeptic. I think that uh, there's a lot of exciting work in empirical moral psychology that's relevant to free will. Um, there's a lot of really interesting studies on the attitude of uh, non-philosophy, the attitudes of non-philosophers towards questions in the free will debate, and I think it's very instructive and very interesting. Hey, so those are three areas in which I think there have been great developments. So as you mentioned earlier, recently there has been a big explosion of work on free will. And one could argue that we have made some progress through this work. But can you tell us about a question that nobody's asking, but that is nevertheless key to make more progress in the debate? So I think that if you think about the free will debate, on the one hand, there's the, the evidence and the arguments, and they play a role. And uh, on the other hand, there are kind of pragmatic reasons to believe what people think it's important to believe. And we see that view expressed by Immanuel Kant. So Kant thought that really libertarian agent causation is, re we, we need to believe in that, but he didn't think that there was a good argument for it. He, in fact, he says, he doesn't even think we can show that it's possible that we have that sort of freedom, which he calls transcendental freedom. So, but yet he thought, that we have good moral or pragmatic reasons to believe that we're free in that sense. So I think that in almost all philosophers, there's um, two kinds of reasons for their beliefs in free will. One is based on the arguments and the evidence, and the other is based on pragmatic or practical considerations. And to think about how those two kinds of reasons relate and whether it's legitimate to believe in free will for practical reasons when, let's say, the arguments go against free will. So I think that's an area worth exploring and that I hope sees a lot of action in the near future. This was the last episode of the first season of our podcast in free will. We have enjoyed quite a lot talking with our guests, and we hope 
you have enjoyed it too. We'll be back at the end of this year. Stay tuned. Till then, Free Will Matters is part of the LATAM Free Will Agency and Responsibility Project. It is produced by Cero Setenta, thanks to a generous grant of the John Templeton Foundation and with the support of Universidad de los Andes and the University of California in San Diego. For more information, visit us at freewill.uniandes.edu.co. That is freewill.uniandes.edu.co. 